My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. Like I said last episode, Gideon didn't really get much out of being, you know, Gideon. Pretty much as soon as he was dead, people started fighting and arguing over who should be in charge. And one of his sons, Abimelech, asked the people of Shechem whether they wanted to be ruled by all 70 sons of Jerubal, Gideon, or just him. You know, just let him do the work. Amazingly, the men of Shechem decided that they would prefer just Abimelech, and they helped him assassinate 70 of his brothers. Now, almost all the sons of Gideon are dead. However, no surprise, one escaped. Ain't that the way? His name was Jotham. The only way that Jotham can really send the message of how bad the situation is, is by telling this parable about how all of the trees asked other trees to be their ruler, the fig tree said no, all the fruit trees said no, and eventually the only one that said yes was the bramble. And Jotham points out that had they dealt honestly with the sons of Gideon and integrously and honorably, things might turn out differently. However, he curses Abimelech and the men of Shechem, saying that they'll be consumed by fire. You know, because of how they totally killed Gideon's other sons and also family. And frankly, Abimelech is not too concerned. You know why? Because he has been crowned king. The men of Shechem not only helped him get power, but they helped him get big power. Kingship power. However, the curse that Jotham put on the men of Shechem and also Abimelech did start to show fruit. Abimelech had been king three years and eventually the leaders of Shechem just hated him and they wanted him out. They saw an opportunity to oust him when a man named Gal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his family and they threw basically a huge festival to one of their gods and at this festival everyone got really drunk and talked about how bad Abimelech was and Gal, again probably drunkenly, is like, who's Abimelech even? Like, we should just get rid of him. Why do we need Abimelech? We're the men of Shechem. Let's just take him out and then we don't have to deal with it anymore. Unfortunately, the actual ruler of Shechem, not just the nobles, his name was Zebel, heard about Gaul's conspiracy and told Abimelech about it and Abimelech sent men to defeat this rebellion, to just quash it. Abimelech's men show up in the middle of the night and Gaul sees them in the morning and is like, oh my gosh, men are coming to attack us. And Zebul's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're mistaking the shadows on the mountain for men. And Gaul's like, no, seriously, there's men coming down. They're coming down from the mountains. And Zebul's like, where's your big mouth now? I thought you were going to go fight Abimelech and overthrow him. So, of course, Gaul, being <laughs> goaded on, has to go fight Abimelech and gets his tush thoroughly whooped. Everyone's just defeated. Abimelech raises the city and salts the land around it so that it's useless. The leaders saw that they had been totally defeated, but they wanted to hide in their stronghold, which they did. And when Abimelech realized that basically everyone was in one tower, he cut down some brush and ordered all of his soldiers to cut down some brush. They laid it against the tower, lit it on fire, and killed another thousand men and women who were trapped inside. He then went to Thebes to try to capture it. Unfortunately, there was yet another strong tower, and he thought he could do the same thing twice. Everyone rushed into the tower. Abimelech brings some brush up against it, and a woman drops the upper half of a millstone out of the tower onto his head and crushes his skull to the point that he is sure that he is dying. Like, he tries the exact same plan. Well, look, a tower full of people and light it on fire. And he gets killed, mostly, by a millstone. Abimelech, realizing that he's dying, turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me, kill me, kill me, before someone can say that a woman killed him. 
The fact that we know this tells you that Abimelech's plan did not work. Everybody knows it was really the woman who killed him, but the armor bearer obediently drove a sword through him. As soon as everybody saw that Abimelech was dead, the whole evil spirit that had been tormenting them, the thing that made them want to cause war was just over. It was like, oh, all right, let's go home. And with the death of Abimelech, Israel needed yet another judge. Again. Abimelech was not really a judge. He was a king, and he was not supposed to be king. There's no indication that God wanted him to be king. Eventually, there will be kings, but we're not there. We're in judges. The next two judges, by the way, were Tola and Jer. They don't have much story to them, which tells me that they probably did a fine job of what they were supposed to be doing. Excellent work. I said excellent work, but the excellent work is over. Israel's back up to its old tricks, and this time a significantly worse kingdom is coming to take over the land. This time it's the Ammonites. They're bad news. The Ammonites are real bad news. Also, you might recognize the name Ammon, like as in Ben-Ami. Anywho, the Ammonites are now in town, and this is really bad. And Israel's like, God help us. And God's like, I've done that before. And amazingly, you don't seem to pay attention to me unless you're in serious danger. Like, you don't follow me after the problem is over. It's like the only thing you want to do is survive. And Israel's like, please, we will do whatever we have to do. Just save us today. Please rescue us from the Ammonites. They're too much for us. And they got rid of all of their foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of the Philistines. And God sent them another judge. His name is Jephthah. Now, Jephthah is interesting. He was a Gileadite, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead, the guy Gilead, big deal. Anyway, Gilead also had a wife who had sons. And when Jephthah grew up, the sons were like, you're the son of a prostitute. We don't want you in our house. And they basically kicked him out like they exiled him. And so he went and lived in the land of Tob and was surrounded by like basically no goods, like 'er ne'er-do-wells. And they all had an encampment and they were kind of like this warring band of, I don't know, bush rangers. It's kind of the vibe. Anywho, when the Ammonites really were oppressing Israel, the Gileadites, you know, the other sons of Gilead, went to Jephthah and were like, please rescue us. Please be our leader. And he's like, I thought you hated me and drove me out of our father's house. I thought you didn't want me around. And they're like, yeah, about that. Uh, We're in big trouble. And so if you can defeat the Ammonites, we will let you be the head of all the men of Gilead. We will put you in charge. Not only will you be a member of the family, you'll be the head of the family. Jephthah's like, okay, I will be the head of the family and head over Gilead if God delivers the Ammonites into my hands. And the elders of Gilead were like, okay, with God as our witness, that's the deal. For once, believe it or not, Jephthah actually asks the conquering king of Ammon why he's doing this. And Ammon's like, you took our land away from us when you came up out of Egypt. And Jephthah is like, correction, Israel under Moses never took anybody's land and none of the land we have now used to be yours. He summarizes the entire wandering through the wilderness, Joshua's whole campaign, and points out that Israel has been occupying its current situation for 300 years and God has not given the land to Ammon and Ammon hasn't come back before. So like, what the heck? They don't have any stake on this, but the king of Ammon won't listen. So they go to war. Jephthah is now at war with the Ammonites. And before he crosses the river to fight them, he makes a vow that if God will deliver the Ammonites into his hand and let Jephthah return home, becoming the head of Gilead, he will sacrifice whatever first greets him when he gets back home as a burnt offering, whomever or whatever it is. 
we don't get any confirmation that God agreed to this bargain. It's not like with Moses or Abraham or something, even with Gideon, where, you know, there was fire or fleece or whatnot. This is just the vow that Jephthah made, that if God would deliver the Ammonites into his hand, if he would whip all their butts, (laughs) he would sacrifice as a burnt offering the first living thing that greeted him when he got home. And he does. He defeats the Ammonites soundly and gets to return home the victorious liberator of the people. However, when he returns home, it isn't a servant or a dog or even a friend who greets him first. The first person who runs out to greet Jephthah is his only daughter, and she is carrying a tambourine and dancing, so excited to see her father victorious. And he bursts into tears and breaks down and tells her, what he promised to God. Jephthah is going to keep his vow. And as it turns out, he promised his own daughter's life as sacrifice. His daughter, whose name we never actually learn, tells her father that she understands that he had made a vow to God and that that is not a joke. Neither of them look for a way out of this promise. She asks him for only one thing. She asks him that she have two months alone with her closest friends in the hill country, that they can weep and mourn that she will never marry, never have children, that she will not get to live the full days of her life. And after the two months are up, she would return and be sacrificed by her father, the first human sacrifice committed in the name of God and utterly detestable before him. The law forbids human sacrifice. In those two months that she was gone, Jephthah didn't ask for a way out. And she didn't ask for a way out. The character of God is being lost in the consciousness of the Israelites. And this girl, this nameless girl, is one of the ones who has to suffer for it. At the end of two months, she does return home to her father. And he fulfills his vow, slaying her and offering her as a burnt offering. It became a custom in Israel to remember her and to go into the hills four days out of every year, year after year, to cry laments for the virgin daughter of Jephthah. And because Jephthah had fought the Ammonites alone with only the men of Gilead, the Ephraimites were upset, the whole tribe. And they also came out against Jephthah, who with the men of Gilead ended up killing 42,000 men of Ephraim. He did it in kind of an interesting way. He captured the Jordan, and then any time they tried to cross over, he would ask them to say the word Shibboleth, which the Ephraimites pronounced as Sibboleth, you know, slightly different accent. And he could always tell that they were Ephraimites, and that's how he ended up killing 42,000 of them. In his extremely tragic and difficult career, Jephthah judged Israel for six years, and then he died and was buried in Gilead. Ibzan Elon and Abdon followed after him, but they don't do much, so we're not going to really cover them. Next episode, we're going to get into perhaps the most famous judge, long hair and big muscles, the original Fabio type, or for you younger people, Thor, but from like the first few movies. That's right. Next episode's a slightly lighter, I guess, if you squint at it, turn, and we're going to talk about Samson. Samson.